0: A Highline Podcast.
1: No normal people.
2: My friends, and welcome to No Normal People. Welcome back. I'm your host, Stephen Henning,
0: and I'm your actual friend. Stephen just says that, but I'm your friend, and I'm your host. I'm just trying to
2: sound like a cool podcast. I'm introducing
0: myself. Okay, I'm your friend and your host, and your favorite uh, cookie monster, Dixie Lee Henning.
2: (laughs) And this is a podcast. Where my wife and I prove that the more you get to know the normal people in your life, you discover that there really are no normal people in your life A You are my favorite cookie monster. <laughs> I don't tell you that enough.
0: That okay, but what does that mean?
2: Uh, you make good cookies. Oh, I do. You don't eat cookies out of a trash can. Okay, neither
0: does cookie monster.
2: Yeah, let's talk about how he only masticates and never swallows. He's a
0: puppet, Steven.
2: He doesn't eat the... There's so much cookie going to waste.
0: Did you know that he has a a vegetable monster counterpart now?
2: No way he does. Mm -hmm.
0: They added the vegetable guy because... People were is complaining he about. Veggie monster? I don't know what his name is, but he teaches you how to eat vegetables.
2: Does he actually eat them or does he <laughs> no, like munch he them the so hard? No, the same exact thing that Cookie Monster does. The Sesame Street.
0: Stephen, do you think that puppets can swallow?
2: I just need more of a <laughs> world building.
0: Stephen, Steven, do you know the anatomy of a puppet?
2: No, listen
0: question is there a mouth in your hand
2: listen (laughs) you could you
0: have a second mouth in the palm of your hand
2: you could feasibly
0: for when when your puppet eats
2: (laughs) you could feasibly leave like no it would look really weird if you (laughs) (laughs) left a hole in a puppet for eating Oh gosh! Now I can't stop thinking about Big Bird eating hot what dogs.
0: Of, what? <laughs> one of my absolute favorite things to watch on any kind of video platform is um, puppets on talk shows. Oh, so like when yeah. Elmo goes on Jimmy Fallon, yeah. that kind of stuff. Uh, it's one of my yeah. favorites.
2: It's like if you're if you're hosting, and then mm-hmm. and then it's just
1: like I. Hello, I am Kermit the Frog.
0: Oh my god, that was so good, Steven. Thanks. Holy crap! Thank
1: you, my friend.
0: I'm married to Kermit!
1: I am Kermit the Frog. Oh my god. <laughs> did you Did you I... not know I could do this, boys? No, I had no Dixie-Ling. damn
0: idea that you could do this. You're literally breaking my brain right now.
1: Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm here to promote my new record. <laughs> It's not easy. This is when you ask me what genre the record is.
0: What genre is it?
1: It's death metal. <laughs> <laughs> we find that puppets are very um well suited for thrashing. <laughs> 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 and I I kind of already have that going for me with the Cookie Monster and Steven. What's my other Who's my other? Wait, the Muppets aren't Sesame <laughs> <laughs>
0: Steven, we need to have a serious conversation. We've been together for 11 you. years, and I never knew that you could do the Kermit voice.
2: You know that's the voice of my next D&D character.
0: Steven, I literally, I literally, I don't know you. Who are you?
2: Do you think you could do Elmo? Give me an Elmo.
0: Oh, God, no. I have to think about it. What does Elmo sound? Stop. Oh, my God. This is my nightmare. ha, ha, ha. Almost wild
2: Oh my god Well how do I how, am I how am I doing this? This is weird.
0: Now do beaker. Uh me me. Oh my god.
2: It's the face. Yeah. It's this is more an audio, the audio face. This is an audio medium, so it's very hard for our <laughs> listeners to see this, but it's this face.
0: Okay, now do Trump. Me, me. What? Trump as a Muppet.
2: Huge. <laughs> That's it. That's all I'm gonna do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> speaking of interesting voices
2: wow what a segue yes yes Dixie Lee how did you like being called Dixie Lee by the way I love it friend, so Jeff? much
0: I've been trying to get people to call me Dixie Lee since Catch I on. learned that my middle name is Lee yeah like, it's just sounds so good it's pretty I have good. a friend from high school that used to call me Dixie Lynn yeah um he knows. He knows that my he middle name who is Lee, <laughs> but he, he, said, knows who he, is. he said he liked Lynn better, so that's fine. Yeah. That's Travis. He
2: just <laughs> likes Lynn better? Yeah. Is that an option? No. Is that an option for me? Like, oh. what if I was just like, I like my middle name to be Lloyd better than George?
0: Uh, we would Ste- separate.
2: Stephen Lloyd Henning.
0: Stephen Lloyd Weber.
2: Thank you, though. <laughs> Or Fr- Frank Lloyd Wright is what I was thinking. The famous sure. mid-century architecture. Right. Man. Yeah,
0: that's what I was thinking. Too. The
2: architecture, man. The,
0: the, the, the building guy. You get it. You get it.
2: Oh, my word, This Dixie is the dumbest Lee. conversation. Our new friend, Jeff Hall. Jeff! Is... Guess
0: how you spell it. Wait a second. I just had a stroke. Guess how he spells it.
2: He spells it L-L-O-Y-D. No, that's no, that's the middle Jeff. name. I wish I had Jeff because
0: I've seen I've seen the okay um,
2: once again though J E
0: F F and the correct the G E F
2: G E O F F. Oh yeah, you once again forget that to listen to this podcast they to, hit like, play and they the saw it. his... Yeah,
0: yeah, I know, but like
2: so it's our friend Jeff Hall. He Jeff. hails from Bristol, England. We had a delightful interview. It was. 8am our time and 3pm his time kind of a future walker
0: I've been I've been quoting I've been quoting Jeff in our conversations
2: Oh my side
0: of, of the yes, interview because I we love were... talking to him so much
2: Well even when we were getting I wish I had it on tape but even when we were getting the audio set up mm-hmm. and he was he mumbling could... at his mic trying to get his headphones yeah. and he's like he says thou art tedious and And i say that every day now we died i say that every day we're
0: dead now we're ghosts talking to you
2: oh my word i cannot say enough good things
0: yeah about jeff
2: my we talk about his so much we talk about his uh his short film first and the feature-length film Mm -hmm. that is forthcoming covid kind of mess yeah. with those plans a little Thanks, bit. COVID. Um we also talk about his brand new just like immersive world yes, that he has I'm released.
0: Yes, so excited.
2: Called The World of Owl.
0: Yeah, and the website dropped yesterday. Correct. And uh, I signed up for the newsletter immediately. Links, <laughs> yes,
2: links in the show notes. It's worldofowl.co.uk. It's so
0: it's awesome. Authentically British. Yeah.
2: Look at that. Look at him go. He's Classic. doing it i just yeah i'm tired of
0: i'm tired of not listening to this
2: episode yes so (laughs) shall we
0: dixie lee shall we away yeah can you say it as kermit though
1: and here we go with our new friend jeff hall
0: oh my god it's perfect
2: All right, Jeff. Well, we are going to get started with some rapid fire questions. These are either or from the gut. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. Homebody or free spirit? Um, I'm a
3: homebody so that I can be a free spirit. Spender or saver? I save so that I can spend.
2: (laughs) I love these turnarounds already. Um, This might be just an American thing, but do you call it soda or pop?
3: I think that must be an American thing.
2: Yeah. Um, what do you call it? it just, is it a soft drink?
3: Uh, yeah, soft drinks. So you could have squash, you know, so a, a, you dilute a concentrated orange squash. Uh, yeah, we, have, we have, do have Coca-Cola, um, <laughs> and uh, we just call right. it Coca-Cola. We don't say anything other than that.
0: That's, that's the correct answer.
3: Yes, absolutely.
2: <laughs> oh, good.
0: I'm scoring points. Excellent.
3: <laughs>
2: you are. Books or movies?
4: Ooh.
3: Oh, you're tearing my soul apart here. I know, that's that's Um, painful. So, um, well, I don't like reading a book and then going to a movie. I'd rather watch the movie of it um, because some books are tediously long. So I would say movies, Mm -hmm. but then I'd also want to say books. It depends which me you're talking to.
2: Introvert or extrovert?
3: Introvert but an extrovert if I need to be. This is me being an extrovert. <laughs> right, um,
2: absolutely. Sweet or savory? Uh I'm a diabetic, so it has to be savory. Fantastic. <laughs> Libraries
3: or museums? Mm. Libraries are spiritual places for me. Museums are just about historical bling.
2: Mm.
3: Oh. Change or consistency? Consistency is overrated. Cats or dogs? Um ooh. I don't like dogs because you have to carry bags around with you. Very um, true. Very true. And, you know, just so it goes on the record. I am not a bag. Um, and uh, cats. Well, I don't like cats because they come into my garden and they savage the little birds that I'm trying to feed. Oh, so, birds. so bird, man. maybe a giraffe or an elephant would be more my kind of, Fantastic. <laughs> <Animal. laughs> Absolutely. <Excellent>. Especially <laughs> elephant, because it would provide lots of manure for the vegetable plot in the garden. There you
2: Absolutely, go. would. Elephant sized doo doo. <laughs> oceans or lakes?
3: I would have to say oceans, because I grew up in a town that is right next to the sea.
2: Soup or salad? <sighs> Ooh.
3: Or do you mean hot soup, Stephen?
2: i absolutely do that's all i mean that's all i ever mean
3: um it depends i would go for a caesar salad over a, a hot soup okay or even as josh says is it a room temperature soup i don't a, even know a, what one a, of those lukewarm. is. A
2: lukewarm soup yeah yeah
3: i think there are warnings about that kind of soup in the book of revelation
2: there is absolutely yes thank you i appreciate this so you,
3: you tell you tell josh that you know
2: yeah I'm, well i'm kind of concerned I I can't proof text too much because that passage does say you should either be hot or cold and (laughs) not lukewarm. (laughs) So that that unfortunately kind of helps someone back up a call. if you're lukewarm, I will
3: spit you out
2: of my mouth. That's true. It's true. Okay, sunrise or sunset?
3: I like sunset because you've made it through the day to actually see it. So I'll go for that.
2: All right, here we go. This this one hits. I don't know if this hits. Cl- it definitely hits closer to home for you. But Hogwarts or the Shire? Oh, Trixie. <laughs> um,
3: that's a bit of a question from Gollum, isn't it? It sure is. <laughs> you Gollumite, you. Um, <laughs> I must admit this household has a love affair for Hogwarts.
0: Yeah, it does.
2: <laughs> that yeah makes complete sense to me. Yes, absolutely. But which house
3: are you in, Dixie Lee? Which house? Hufflepuff. All day.
2: Oh, cool. Okay. Right. is Hufflepuff. I am Gryffindor. At least that's what Pottermore tells me. So.
3: Yeah, I just obviously need to buy a sorting house because I just don't know what house I would be in. <laughs> mm
2: mm-hmm. Tea or coffee?
3: Coffee, unless it's Chinese oolong tea, mm. which I first had in the old Shanghai tea house in the old city of
2: Shanghai. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that that would create an entire experience around that beverage. I can appreciate. Oh, it did.
3: It was joyous.
2: Absolutely. We have a few more like icebreaker questions. We kind of we yeah. we strayed from the the rapid fire from the gut, but I really appreciated your elaboration. So we're just going to pick a couple more of these icebreakers here.
3: Is that a polite way of saying I failed that one?
2: <laughs> There's really no failure on no normal people. I can't I can't I won't lay that at your feet. No. Oh, good. Um, do you like being surprised? Yeah. Shortest answer ever. Usually,
3: yeah, well, I... you, you see, having taken your slap on the wrist for making the rapid fire no. round a really slow motion fire round. No. I just thought I would, you know, oh, go, yeah, yeah.
2: Fair enough. What would you consider to be your proudest accomplishment? Ooh, you've just
3: opened up a minefield. I... I think it's, it's having a family and being part of a family that you can hold together, but they can also hold you together.
4: Mm. Mm.
2: Do you have a collection of anything? Oops, Books. <laughs> That's the one. Of um, course it is.
3: Yes, I have a collection of over 300 DVDs. Yeah. Um, I know it's, it's kind of old school. I should be talking about downloads, really, shouldn't I? But I hate downloading. What are
0: you streaming?
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because it's still somebody else's property. And I'm thinking, "Hmm, you know, my DVDs I can watch anytime I want. I don't have to tell anybody. And then I have an enormous collection of books, which I cannot number, and which Jeanette is my wife. Um, She is talking about us looking at the study. So we have a study in the house. And the bookshelves are already full and I'm stacking books on top of books sidewards, <laughs> you know?
1: And yeah. so she's talking I, yes.
3: about giving me an extra bookshelf unit. Um, whilst um, I have to somehow lose a lot of my research papers from my degrees out of a filing cabinet because she wants to get rid of the filing cabinet. And apparently that's a really good compromise.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's a one in one out situation here. Yeah. We make a trade. Yep. What What's the worst fashion trend you've ever participated in? Oh,
3: I think that would have to be the blue patent leather platform boots. Oh God!
2: Fantastic. <laughs> yes, I love this.
3: 1970s, baby. We rocked.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Let's see. What would you call your biggest pet peeve? Oh, here we go. Redemptive violence. Whoa. That's a
3: big one. What a.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. Just these little side issues, you know.
3: Mm.
2: <laughs> the little side issues <laughs> that's your pet yes redemptive violence yeah I'm just sitting with that one for a second <laughs> I, can tell. Usually, I can tell usually it's like <laughs> my biggest pet peeve is when people are slow in the grocery store or something really trivial but that went big really fast I appreciate
3: I'm a writer I don't do trivial
2: <laughs> this this is very fair <laughs> Um, what would you consider to be One of your favorite failures. Oh, I'm
3: going to throw you a curveball. I'm going to say my vasectomy.
2: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah.
3: I've got a few stories to tell about that, but maybe we'll come back to that because it will spoil (laughs) this icebreaker moment.
2: Well, I feel like the ice has been thoroughly broken at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Oh, my gosh. Okay. We're we're going to call that a close to the the rapid fire and the the icebreaker here. Phew. (laughs) I'm... I'm tired of not talking about where you grew up, mostly just because, like I said in our our pre conversation uh-huh. here, is I, the British experience is just so foreign to me. Even though even though we have so much in common, I'm so excited to learn hmm. about like where you grew up and what your family was like growing up. So could we start there? Mm-hmm. Um,
3: where did I grow up? I grew up in an industrial town called Hartlepool in the northeast of England. It had A lot going for it in those days. It had four main industries, mining, Mm. shipbuilding. It had a couple of steel mills and it also had a fishing industry. Mm. But then um, that evil witch, who's obviously from Slytherin, uh, Margaret Thatcher (laughs) came along. And um, wow, the Ministry of Not-So-Much-Magic, yeah, (laughs) and we were left with just 10% of a fishing industry and all the others disappeared. Oh, wow. Classic Slytherin.
2: And this was, this was the effects of policies being put in place. Yeah. In your community. Um, Wow.
3: Have you read of a book called the shock doctrine by Naomi Klein?
2: I have not. No.
3: Uh, She goes, I'll have to try and get this guy's name right. I think the uh, economist's name is Neiman out of Chicago. Um, Mm. Don't blame Chicago. (laughs) And his view was that, that basically you could, downgrade or loose all of these old industries uh that were burdening the economy mm. um and mm. then it seemed to me that what you did that you allowed new industries well not so much in hartleypool but uh, that was his theory i think to come in and basically make money and privatize everything so all the state-run industries had gone and they were kind of uh, i wouldn't say they were privatized because they're just not there anymore there's nothing there
4: sure um, yeah it's
3: the same as if you go into the midlands where there used to be a car industry there's no longer a car industry and if you went mm-hmm. to the south of wales then you'd find there's no mining there so right the thatcher years were very very difficult very divisive it definitely uh well she's the only politician i hate <laughs> put it that way and so it was a pretty desolate place um so when we were married in 1979 I think uh, that she was still in power and the early 80s came along. And this is when the the real kind of the grip of the state was tightened, shall we say, to kind of choke the life out of the working class.
4: Mm. Mm.
3: And um, sadly, the first seven years of our marriage, I was unemployed for four of those. Mm. Wow. And I just I didn't have confidence. I didn't have anything going for me, Mm. really. Um, I did have a skill. I was an apprentice, uh, so I became what we call a sparky in the Northeast, so an electrician. And I served Mm. a five-year apprenticeship for that. And after two years of working as an electrician, I was made redundant and I never worked as an electrician again.
2: My goodness.
3: So really tough times. And when you don't have any confidence, then I I let Jeanette down massively, I think. Mm. but. So Hartlepool, yes, was this this town where it had 25 plus percent unemployment. And I ended up working. There used to be kind of schemes called Manpower Services Commission, which was basically a way of upsetting the unemployment figures by putting people into projects, Mm -hmm. working with unemployment people, unemployed people. And so I ended up working on an estate as a youth and community officer where the unemployment rate was 75%. Wow.
2: Good gracious. Wow. I'm trying to get the timing straight in my head. What were the mm. effects on your family growing up as things were evolving in your town here?
3: Well, my mom and dad, I think the biggest effect was that I started thinking that I needed to, a change of direction. And mm. so I said to Jeanette, I'm thinking of going to the university, well, a polytechnic as we called them then trying to find some new skills, really. Um, and so she said, oh, where do you have in mind? And she thought it was going to be Teesside Polly, which was the local poly. And um, I said, no, I was thinking of Middlesex or Bristol. And so to cut a long story short, we uh, ended up in Bristol. And I think it's been an interesting journey since then. Yeah. So um, the biggest effect then really was that uh, my poor dad sat in the bathroom after we said goodbye and went off in the car uh, with our little little boy called Mark, as he was then, probably about 14 or 15 months old. Wow. And he sat in the bathroom and cried for three hours. <laughs> oh, wow.
2: Yeah, so... Because
3: he knew he wasn't going to see his, his grandson very often.
4: Mm.
2: Wow.
3: So it was just a way of families were breaking up, really. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And it was difficult to hold it together when... You know, you've been taught a trade that you could no longer use. And my dad said, oh, well, that was another failure on me then, wasn't it? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I was the one that said, get a trade, son. Don't be a bum like your dad. <laughs> oh, wow. And I'm like, hey, dad, you're not a bum, you know? <laughs> you know, you've, you've worked 55 hours a week, but I don't know, as long as I can remember, just to keep the family together, I suppose this felt like this was his reward, really.
2: Um, which was so, so sad. What was he doing working so hard? What was his profession?
3: So my dad worked in a metal workers factory.
0: Oh, okay.
2: Oh. So he used to have
3: these big machines that would cut out what they called expanded metal, which was a kind of like grilled mesh Mm. that you'd Mm -hmm. put on walkways, you know, and things like that. Yep. Yeah. So he spent his life doing that. He had, I think, four years off to fight in the second world war and basically ended up in Palestine. At the end of the war, when there were all sorts of problems with security in Palestine at the time. Sure. Well, wow. Nothing's
2: changed then. The, um, yeah. Wow. So th- this effect of the hometown evolving, industries closing, forces you guys to fracture a bit. Do you have other siblings that were also moving away from home at the time? I
3: had my sister, who mm-hmm. went a little bit further up the northeast coast towards Scotland. And she went to uh, a Bible college with her husband and their kids. So my mom and dad were basically left alone. You know, yeah, I, you know, I didn't, didn't really enjoy my life in, in Hartlepool. It's safe to say. Right. Um, it just seemed to undermine anything that I thought was, I was hang- hanging on to, you know, mm, yeah. to give me a sense of purpose or direction. And all of that was kind of taken away yeah absolutely Mm.
2: but it sounds like bristol gave you a new formation a new path so tell me about moving to bristol and maybe where you started at university
3: yeah so i ended up studying art history so i did my well not thesis dissertation in the iconoclastic disorders of the 16th century and i just found that a a breath of fresh air i Mm. put in you know what what First essays are like you're you're kind of excited to be given something to study, but then you kind of worry about handing it in and whether it's a load of crap, really. Um, <laughs>
2: Absolutely, yeah.
3: And so I handed this in just before Christmas and got it back. And um, at the bottom of the footnotes page was where he used to put his notes, and he just wrote, "Thank you so much for this essay." Wow. And wow. I was like, "Oh, oh dear." So maybe I can write. And I think that was, that was the dawning of it, you know, very, very slowly, cool. wow. you know, yeah. um, just very, very slowly. It was, became an awareness that, yeah, I could write. So I, I think that kind of that helped in a, well, plant a seed, really, um, just to, has gradually kind of died and, 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 you know, is now a plant.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Called,
3: called a novel and a film and much more besides. So, you know, I think that's sometimes the way, the divine works within us. We don't get mm-hmm. everything at once. It's not a one-time-fits-all conversion, mm, if you like. Yeah. It's a, conversion is a, a continuous process, and I can kind of look to three different phases, if you like, of my life. But yes, coming to Bristol was definitely one of those phases. Yeah, it gave me so much. I ended up then doing a second degree, which was an MPhil in educational curriculum design. So this looked at uh, the narrative basis of knowledge in schools to try and reformulate mm. the curriculum to say, let's not just have isolated subjects over here that seem to have nothing to do with anything else, but let's look at it. So, so history, what does history tell us about, say, the 19th century in France? Mm. Uh, okay, um, so lots of revolutions, it seems, lots of empires. But what about the art? Let's connect it to the art. Let's teach Kids about the arts of that time. Right. What about literature in those times? What about music? You know, what about the politics? And so it, it, I suppose we would call it a more holistic, worldview ish design for the curriculum. Wow. So yeah. uh, I, I did that as well.
2: I love that connection you're making. I'm only recently beginning to draw some of those connecting lines from the education I got through high school and f- from my couple <laughs> years in college.
4: Mm.
3: I remember I went to um, what is called a secondary modern school. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it wasn't a grammar school. The grammar school was for the really intelligent lot. And then the lesser intelligent ones like me um, had this school to go to, which was just, you know, I hated school. I hated school so much. I Mm. always felt that it had very little to do with life and it frustrated me. And I'd missed certain periods of time through my education and never really caught up that was through various um accidents so you know i kind of missed huge chunks of it and there was wasn't then there wasn't a kind of program to help you cover the ground for you to catch up so you know when i when i was five i was i was hit by a van um on the road oh goodness face on what and what that sent me spiraling into the air. Apparently, I didn't really know much about it, except I can still see the headlights coming towards me.
2: My goodness. What? And so
3: I was, <laughs> I was kind of out of it for a while, and I missed some school because of that. Yeah. So that was about the age of five, so very early school days. And then at the age of eight, as if you'd think I would learn to cross the road by now, um, <laughs> I stepped out and was hit by a motorbike and was oh. dragged along the road. My leg oh. was broken, and one side of my face was skinned. Oh, um, my gosh. You know, so I was off school quite, quite a while with a pot on my leg and this scab on my face and feeling absolutely awful and actually glad that I didn't have to go to school because the best time of the school year for me was the <laughs> summer holidays, and I could then sit, you know, I would lock myself away, I think probably as a, as a response, a reaction to all of these kind of problems uh, with roads safety skills. And so I really missed out and I feel messed up. I think I just couldn't get it. I would get school reports that would say Jeffrey is very conscientious, but thick.
4: Oh, and <laughs> oh, because they wow. didn't
3: use the word thick, but they used an educational word that, and I could work it out. That that's what they meant. Jeffrey yeah. tries hard, but he doesn't get anywhere.
2: <laughs> oh, it it was wow.
0: Thick adjacent. Wow.
2: yeah 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 (laughs) wow so my goodness jeff literally every time (laughs) we speak you start you you reveal a little bit more about your life and i'm just like what the what (laughs) the heck like i had (laughs) i had no idea we were going to get to uh, you having some motorized accidents (laughs) in relation to your studies of education and curriculum building but uh my goodness, I see the relation no. though, because if you have a couple very traumatic experiences that uh, that happen at such a formative age, yeah, like of course your yeah. your educational uh, momentum would be interrupted at certain points. So, is that what sure. informed your your interest in pursuing this degree? Was uh, let, let's look at how we can transform education for th- for this next generation and help connect the dots.
3: Um, yes, I mean that never never worked there's there's another story to be told about why it's only a, a master of philosophy and not a PhD mm. but let's not go into that so it I, I thought it was going to let lead me into a career perhaps uh, in, in academia mm, okay and that just obviously was not in the plan although <laughs> you know that had not been discussed with me um <laughs> so uh, it was a surprise to me and so yeah I mean I'd I'd if I look back at my life as far as conversions go, when I was 17, I became a Christian, whatever that means nowadays. So this is 1974, and I it was a very dualistic, black and white, sacred, secular. It was a mission hall, so you knew what you were going to get. Hellfire on mm-hmm. one side and the bliss of heaven on the other. And, and you get, you're free to choose. So that didn't seem, really seem much of a choice, I think. I gradually rebelled against that. But there was uh, one of those chance meetings of somebody that should not have been in Hartlepool, but was. And uh, he, this guy was a philosopher called Richard Russell, and his wife was an artist. Uh, she's called Janice. And they, for some strange reason, took a liking to me and they simply started handing me books over. So, Rookmarker's Modern Art and the Death of Culture or Calvin Siavel's Rainbows for the Fallen World. Oh, these are these a big four-volume tome of uh, Hermann Duyavird's, uh A New Critique of Theoretical Thought? And I was just kind of, you know, feeding off this, and they would give me a little bit of Hegel and a little bit of Kant along the, the side as well, you know? And Richard said to me, you've got a brain, why don't you use it? Wow, wow. <laughs> so h- his philosophy was reformational. Mm. So... That moved me from that kind of dualism of sacred/secular to what the worldviewishness of Reformational thinking is: creation, fall, and redemption. So um, mm. that expanded my world a lot more because the binary system was was breaking up. Sure. And yeah. So I expanded a bit more. Nowadays, I would say I've had another conversion, or perhaps same of the same part of the same conversion, is the fact that I would now say. I'm just a contemplative. That's it. So I'm into, you know, the kind of mystical teachings of Cynthia Bourgeau or Richard Raw, Rob Bell, bless yes. him for all his condemnations as a heretic. <laughs> um, Absolutely.
2: Yes. <laughs> I,
3: I too must be a heretic, you know, and I, I was just curiosity was always feeding me. So, so I ended up moving from a dualistic system to a tertiary system. And then to this kind of universal system. And, and that, for me, was the final connection with, with writing because it gave me a whole universe to look at wow, and not just wow. a kind of subculture, you know, a right. little, little stream somewhere. I always wanted to be in the mainstream culture. But, of course, you're, you're warned about that in dualistic theology. Reformational theology, for me, it, it was good, but the, the problem was... It was great for the thinkers. It was great for the intellectuals, the academics. But I wanted to make stuff and get it out there. And I just wow, didn't yeah. find a way to, of connecting that. And so, you know, it's kind of really been a, a slow road. You know, you're talking about from when I was 17 to where I am now, at just coming up to my 64th birthday. And, you know, curiosity has just continued to to, to feed that. So... Have you heard of a guy called Jacques Ellul? I have not, no. Oh, right. Okay. Um, So he's written loads of books. I think he's written over 40 books. So he was uh, a Frenchman who was, as they say politely, a lay theologian and a Mm -hmm. sociologist. Mm -hmm. And he was also, during World War II, a member of the French Resistance. Mm. So this guy had a bit of a track record. And I like that about him. So he's written a book as well called Anarchy and Christianity, which you really must read, both of you, um, which is fantastic. But let me just jump in here and say what his ver- worldview is like. I've got this quote that I wrote down for you, and it's, it's this. Christians should be troublemakers, creators of uncertainty, agents of a dimension incompatible with society.
4: Mm.
2: Oh,
3: troublemakers, uncertainty, incompatibility, mm. <laughs>
2: which are not things going, n- not things we find <laughs> synonymous with, like an evangelical Christianity right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, not.
2: whoa, no.
3: and and that's the same in in the UK, right? It's the same in Europe. I think, you know, the very you know, notion of a Christian being a troublemaker was like what? Oh, but you know, well, <laughs> there's a sign of a heretic. Obviously, right, yeah, you're,
0: d- you're doing Christian you stir Christianity some things wrong. up.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know, creators of uncertainty. Well, the church I grew up in when I was a teenager was, was all about certainty of mm. salvation and forgiveness of sins and this transactional sense,
4: mm-hmm.
3: you know? So I think it was mentioned on the Ravel podcast about deconversion. I think yes. Emily mm-hmm. mentioned yeah. that. And yep. I thought, mm, you know, I think if we think of conversion as a one-stop shop event, then yeah, it may seem like deconversion. But actually, I think it's a continuation of conversion. It's conversion that's the right kind of thing because it doesn't stop anywhere. It doesn't mm. feel comfortable anywhere. Right. And so, you know, I think if you're going to be a troublemaker and a creator of uncertainty, you have to be okay with uncertainty.
2: Yeah, and okay with that conversion and evolution process. Like Richard Rohr talks about, you have to enter the flow. And the definition of flow is that it's always going... Somewhere, you know, if that water stagnates, then that's when it gets yeah. gross and and yes. and thick and muddy and
3: yeah, the water hole becomes scummy.
2: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. We don't we don't enjoy it like a flowing, clear river. Yeah. Wow.
3: And I I think this kind of sense of contemplation really helps with that uncertainty. It helps mm. because you're you're okay with paradox. I don't have to ev- have everything nailed down before I go. Okay. Yep. Yeah, divine one the one and only you've got me i'm going to follow you know just just show me a little bit and i'll follow right. you know so so these are the guys that are kind of feeding into me also um there's an american theologian called walter brueggemann
2: yes you yes. must have heard
3: yeah the prophetic imagination you know um i don't want to sound like a, a book of quotes but <laughs> there's a quote i came across so 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 brueggemann is he's talking about totalism as in the system yes A total environment is Mm. what Lull would call it. But He says, because the totalism, that is the system, wants to silence, banish, or eliminate every such unwelcome intrusion, and I would say the prophetic, the poetic, then the tricky work is to find standing ground outside the totalism from which to think the unthinkable, to imagine the unimaginable, and to utter the unutterable. Mm. And I just sat there and I thought, That is the work of the artist.
4: Mm.
2: It absolutely is. What a perfect segue then. I'm ready to talk about your art at this Mm, point. mm. But yeah, could we talk about your film? Could we talk about my name is Sorrow? Would you just give us an introduction to what this is for you and what this represents in your life conversion process?
3: It's about well, it came we made it in two thousand and twelve. I managed to pull together ten thousand pounds to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say I managed to pull together well okay um, <laughs> so we were pushing the boat out I'd, I'd written it I'd got the crew on board still didn't have any money we did auditions for the role of sorrow and still didn't have any money on board mm. and the night I got home after uh, the auditions I sat in this living room right at this spot I'm sitting now and I didn't turn any lights on because I'm an artist and I feel like that. I'm okay with the dark.
2: <laughs> right. And, Absolutely. And I said,
3: Well, okay, God, what now? And Jeanette was in the kitchen. I don't think I don't know whether she's working on one of one of her now world famous curries, but she said, <laughs> yes. Oh, this came for you earlier. And she passed me this envelope and I opened it and there was a card of the resurrection tomb. Yes, in Jerusalem.
4: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
3: And in it was a check for 5,000 oh pounds.
4: Wow.
3: Gosh. Wow. Wow. So I go, okay, you got me. And then because I got that 5,000 pounds, which I celebrated with my friends, then another 5,000 came in. Wow. And so I w- we were able to make it. And so everybody on that film was paid, including Fantastic. me.
2: Ah, Fantastic. Um,
3: which was good. <laughs> we had a charity event for the release of the film. So it's a shot. It's only 12 minutes long. It is called My Name is Sorrow, which kind of weaves in and out of uh, the Man of Sorrow's poem in Isaiah. Um, Mm. Just by dropping the odd word in or the odd phrase, you know, subtly, not evangelically. And it was, I'd seen a lot of films about human trafficking and about sex trafficking. And Mm -hmm. some of them I felt like this is actually more about the director's strength of conviction than it is actually about the issue. So what i wanted to do was create a film that just had the voice of the woman mm. there were no male actors she's locked up in a room there are no male actors at all and we hear her thoughts about her story she tells her wow. story yeah and that is basically what the film is about so it unpackages every possible way that we've had mm. of showing the injustices and the the horror of human trafficking and sex trafficking and I tried to reimagine that. So, you know, we go back to that quote of, of imagining the unimaginable.
4: Mm, and that was yeah.
3: basically, sadly, the unimaginable was giving a woman a voice.
4: Mm.
3: Wow. Which is interesting. So, yeah, we, we had the, uh, the evening, uh, which was supporting a charity called unseen, which works with people who are, human trafficked and uh yeah it was it was a great evening and then it it went on to this thing uh, a website and we got things like you know the most viewed film on the weekend the most loved film you know whatever Mm -hmm. uh and then it went bust and um yeah that was sad so and that was it and in those days i really didn't have a clue on how then to take that film and give it to a wider audience so we put it on Vimeo.com. And if you search Vimeo.com for My Name is Sorrow, you'll come across Handy Cloud Productions. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the films on board there. Um, I then found that we were given a gift uh, to translate the film into Russian because mm. I felt this film should be translated into many languages possible. Mm-hmm. And we only manage Russian and English. Um, so there is on the Vimeo account, there is a Russian. Version of that, and again, wow, yeah. everybody was paired You know, I'm—I've got a good awesome. track record as far as that goes. <laughs> um, and 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 basically, I thought actually there's a big there's a bigger story I want to tell about this, and so I got to thinking about making a feature film because I thought if I'm going to make short films for the rest of my life, I'm never going to earn a living.
4: Not so right. I had
3: the cunning idea of. Um, you know, the cunning plan um, to create a feature film, which stems from a dream that I had. Um, And I had a dream, one of those very vivid dreams, and I could feel my heart pounding and my breath was, you know, panting away. And it was a dark room and a young girl, I could hear footsteps coming towards me and a young girl suddenly came into I suppose in terms of a stage, you'd think of the, the side lights coming across the front of the stage. And she sets foot in those. Mm. And she said, my name is Rachel Anderson. Please don't forget about me. And then disappeared. And I woke up and I was like, you know, yeah. hit my chest and in a, in a real state. But that was the seed that started into the bigger world of a film called Seeing Rachel, which wow. I have wow. still yet to make. So I had a production company that I had to dissolve. We found that the, the uh, executive producer really wasn't what he said he was. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But we're still wanting to make that. So it's, it's very much, obviously, a very different film from My Name is Sorrow because it's feature length. It's, a, it's 90 minutes or 100 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it goes into, it starts off as a procedural and then it moves into the psychological Uh, the psychology of the guy that has taken a girl called Rachel, the police who are trying to find Rachel, and basically the the mind of the mother who had lost Rachel. And so we gradually move into the kind of psychological uh, approach to telling a story. So it it is very much, again, of imagining the unimaginable and saying, well, okay, what actually, because everybody i've seen in in films that has to do with trafficking they seem to be actors in a part you know mm-hmm. um, totally and i th- i thought really what is missing is the psychological edge to that so my kind of influences there are, are, are filmmakers like andrei tarkovsky or Krzysztof uh, kislovsky who just were amazing poetic i would say poetic filmmakers and that's What I want to kind of weave, that's the texture, if you like, of of, uh, seeing Rachel, which hopefully will be made in the next few years, Um, but we'll see. Do you mind me
2: asking where the interest or the the passion for uh, illuminating issues around trafficking came from?
3: Um, I think it seems that social justice is a dirty word nowadays. Mm. It's put into one camp, either left or right. I forget which one is which. But, you know, uh, so it's kind of demeaned. But when I was growing up as a, as a young Christian in, the, in my teens, um, I was very much at a heart for the persecuted church in Russia. And so I hmm. learned of uh, a charity called Open Doors with Brother Andrew. And so I would go down to London and I would protest outside of the Russian embassy and uh, do things like that and it just it was something that stirred in me i didn't know it was there i didn't sit down and read a book about it i was just kind of confronted with this issue i didn't have an intellectual process if you know what i mean
4: mm-hmm. yeah right
3: it was just a kind of heart process so i think i've always that's always been part of my journey that's part of the baggage that i carry um, mm. but you know um the dream that i had about seeing rachel was in 2012 mm. wow And then in the same year, I had another dream, very kind of lucid dream about this red desert. So uh, if you've seen the Jordanian desert, this is this beautiful red Mm -hmm. color. And uh, there was this man, naked man, walking across this desert and the wind was whipping up the sand. So it was kind of abrasing his skin, you know, that kind of horrible sand feeling. And it started raining and this kind of, small kind of well large puddle or small pond take your pick started forming and before he could reach it he collapsed and died of thirst and Mm. I thought oh well that's interesting that sounds like the artist's um (laughs) lot for me um (laughs) you know you just get to the funding and then yeah
0: you
1: know there you go
0: (laughs) you can see it um, but you can't yeah you can see it but you
3: can't touch it you can't actually drink it you know, right. you can watch the blossom come on to the uh, tree and the fruit form, but you can't reach the tree to get to harvest if you like. Yeah, wow. And that's that's been yeah that's been a theme of my life. Um, so where was I? So yes, this guy collapses in the middle of this desert next to this watering hole, and then his belly starts to push out. And all all the time, I'm sat on this rocky outcrop watching below this this dream and so his belly starts to descend and then i can extend rather and i can hear his ribs cracking and the skin splits and out comes sorry this is very visceral isn't it for (laughs) some of your listeners and and this woman crawls out
4: Hmm.
3: and crawls over him and into the waterhole and washes herself and then i'm kind of my eyes are kind of zooming in on her and then she turns and she looks at me directly, which is very unnerving in a dream. Yeah, definitely. Um, yes. And she starts to float towards me. And at which point I go, no, no, i got to wake up, got to wake up. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, I go, yeah, yeah. We like what you're doing, love what you've done with the place, but not for me. Thank you. <laughs>
0: I'm and go so now.
3: as usually with these dreams, I write it down and I go, well, okay. So who was the man and who was this woman? Hmm. So, and you know, what is this about? What relationships would they have? What world would they live in? Mm -hmm. And so the story of, uh, which is now called Owl Believe, O W L Believe, is part of a trilogy, which may be in four parts. I'm not quite sure.
1: Um,
3: (laughs) And it is about a time where there is a totalitarian state at work. Everything is provided for them except freedom. And this young lad, the, the dead man in the desert is a writer. Oh, hello. Yes, projecting, <laughs> yep, of course. Yep. Um, and the, the, the woman he meets, uh, so he's called Strix, which is a Latin name for owl. And she's called Falco, which means falcon. Yep, and right. um, they meet each other, um, literally bumping into each other in this project, which is a place where all the menial workers are kept. And then they're driven out to their employment every day, Monday to Saturday. And so it's a very controlled and very claustrophobic environment. But Mm. he is part of a a friendship group who are all artists and coders. Okay, there's a theme there as well. And they decide that enough is enough, that the state, yes, gives them everything. It gives them education. It gives them housing. It gives them employment. But they don't have any freedom. And that's the rub. So they decide that they are going to, they're inspired really by the white rose movement, which you must've heard of. Yes. Sophie Shaw? Hans Shaw,
2: second world war briefly. My goodness. Uh, give us the, give us the one Oh one on it.
3: Okay. This is best read folks in Richard Hans's book, a noble treason. (laughs) They are a bunch of young students in Munich and, Uh, They decide that they've had enough of this murderer called Hitler and his system, Mm. and they're going Mm. to do something. But they're dedicated very much to nonviolence, which is another link with, I will believe. And so they start writing pamphlets, and they're going through phone books, which in those days had not just the phone number and the name, but also the address. So they would find themselves writing letters to members of, you know, town councils that were Nazis, you know, uh, whatever. And, and, and they were spreading the word, basically, of, of we've had enough of this Hitler freak and he's a murderer and um, something has to be done about it. Surely your conscience must uh, be, be stirred by the murder that's going on,
4: mm. the cost right. that
3: it's causing to the German nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they wrote about four pamphlets and then they were doing kind of graffiti on the walls of public uh, buildings you know you're kind of i suppose down with hitler and things like that hitler's a murderer you're a murderer they were caught eventually and they were given a trial which was really a short trial of what we do to insurrectionists and within right. 4 days they were all taken out and guillotined wow mm. so if you want to know more get hold of that book because it, it's just an amazingly written book
2: and this was um, called the White Rose Movement? No, uh,
3: th- this was the right wo- White Rose Movement, yes. Sophie Scholl and her brother Hans Scholl, and a whole bunch of others. But the book mm, is called wow. A Noble Treason. And yeah, so that is, is basically stunning. And they are an influence on this small group of people in Bristol. So it's, it's written in Bristol. And so they very much take on board these kind of uh, influences.
2: And this becomes the, the setting, the beginnings of your novel.
3: Yeah. I mean it is a it's a wide story because again I wrote this in 2012 13 and we've been looking to publish it uh but my publisher Chris Lawrence, there's been all sorts of kind of uh, resource issues and problems mm-hmm. and he moved from Bristol to Fort Collins in Colorado. Oh wow.
4: yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> and
3: probably what just down the road from you? No. <laughs> so but now we're in a position whereby We've employed a designer. He's working on the website. He's worked on the book cover as well. Mm. It's a book cover like no other book cover. It probably breaks every rule of book covers that (laughs) ever was written about book covers. (laughs) And, you know, we've just tried to go about it quietly. We haven't really, you know, had uh, massive promotions. It's just kind of mentioned in dispatches, as they say. Mm -hmm. But we're getting to the point where we really need need to push the boat out. Um, Mm -hmm. So the plan is basically at the beginning of May, hopefully in time for when this little interview comes out, (laughs) that uh, the website will be up and then you can participate in what we're calling the World of Owl. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, articles written by the main characters, father and mother, who were murdered by the state security services. Yeah, they kind of, uh, I've been writing 2020 was a a bad year for everybody, but it, it, in my own life, I spend my time locked away, isolated writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't really much change in, in the social side of things for me. Um, and, and I'd, I'd managed to complete four writing projects, which are kind of backstories to the main novels. Mm. Wow. Um, but written by the father and the mother. Wow. Um, so, so you have titles like um, "Of Ghosts and Poltergeists," uh, you know, so uh, and "The Watcher of Men," um, mm. because part of this is the father is called Jack, who's a poet, and um, he is somebody that has a history of finding himself on the wrong side of the law <laughs> because of his resistance activities. Right. Um, yeah. Um, so, you know, the sense of being a ghost to him wasn't a haunting in that sense of a, a specter. It was the fact that artists and writers were disappearing mm. and their books were being taken from the bookshelves of the libraries. Wow. And so, so his, his jibe was the fact that, you know, you may remove the books, but the artist, you know, the writer as a ghost will actually be putting those books and different books back on that you still wow. don't know are in existence yet. Wow. So oh my I very much
2: enjoyed that. Um, what's the web address that we will be able to participate in okay, this? Okay,
3: Joy. Yes, it's called worldofowl.co.uk.
2: Fantastic. We got it. That will be in the show notes as well. Because you got it. Man, I, I love all I the wanna thought. I want to read this
0: book. Absolutely, like right I now. do.
2: Yes, please. <laughs> when, when, what's the target date for publication? Because I, I mm. like... Sign me up on a pre-order, Jeff. Can can we We, pre-order? Yes, please.
3: Well, yeah, you can. You'll be able to pre-order and you'll get some goodies for pre-ordering. It's, well, my view was it should be the 24th of June uh, because that was the first time that the white, that's a kind of anniversary that the White Rose Movement started to write their pamphlets. Oh, that. That
0: is excellent.
3: uh, Yes.
2: Against Hitler's regime. The theme of, like, poetic meaningfulness. It's so strong in everything you do, Jeff. I'm loving it.
3: Oh, Thanks. Thanks. Wow. You know, it's, uh, we um, sometimes
0: I'm say so that. I'm so excited to read this book.
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, well, we are looking for people to come on board that can help us do a beta test of it because mm-hmm. it's going to be an ebook and it's going to be a Kindle book just because we're a small concern and it's easier to get the things coded and right. put up on those kind of big uh, bookstores. Right. Called Apple and um,
2: <laughs> Amazon. Yeah, what's
3: the other one? Amazon. Talk about a river, isn't it? Yeah. Amazon,
2: that's right. It's, yeah. Um, the river. The Nile? One of yeah. those. No, uh, it, oh, Thames. Was
3: it Wasn't it the Thames or something?
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah, that's the technological yeah. superpower. Yeah, they should definitely the yeah, rename right.
3: Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> don't pay their taxes.
0: Um, oops. Uh, oops. Oops, oops, oops. So, yeah.
2: Us Americans. Us Americans then. have a weird relationship with taxes, though. Yeah, we do. That was kind of the whole thing that started yeah. in the 1700s, too. So,
0: Yeah.
3: Uh, ah, yeah. yes. No taxation without representation. Yep.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
3: If you believe that still, hey. <laughs> More <for> you. <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, fantastic. Jeff, oh my gosh. Yeah. Th- um, yes.
3: So that's it. And in between... We're we're thinking of looking at putting out a soundtrack on Spotify of the book because there are various chapters in the book which refer to (laughs) music. And so I thought a good idea would be if people could listen to the music while they read the book, you know, because I I think actually music in my mind creates an atmosphere.
0: Yeah, it does.
2: Oh, yes, of course.
3: It evokes the atmosphere of the book at all sorts of different occasions. And I'm not going to give any spoiler alerts, but, you know, it, I think that's that's something about my life as well. I once wrote a short story, which I co- cleared. Have you heard of Gary Newman? Yeah. 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 So he had a, a, a track back in the late 70s, early 80s called I Die, You Die. Right. And so as, a, as an early stage writer, I decided I was going to play this track all day on repeat. <laughs> whilst i wrote this story oh
2: wow yeah
3: and um i'm happy to say i no longer need to do that to maintain the mood and the atmosphere of the book <laughs> um but uh yeah so that's the kind of thing i used to be my practice has changed so much really but you know um yeah that's the that's a kind of broad plan really
0: we're gonna take a quick break and be right back to our conversation
2: This episode of No Normal People is brought to you by the No Normal People Coffee Blend in partnership with Revel Coffee in Billings, Montana. This bright and complex coffee will come fresh roasted to your door for you to enjoy the delicious symphony of citrus, berry, spice, and chocolate notes. Visit Highline.network slash shop to enjoy a cup of coffee as normal as our podcast guests.
0: No Normal People is supported by our generous patrons who joined us at Patreon.com/NoPeoplePod. You too can join the Normal People community to gain access to our private Discord, merch store discounts, and monthly bonus episodes.
2: If you like what you're hearing, the best way to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us a five-star rating and a review, which helps others find the show.
0: If you find this podcast valuable, please tell a friend about the show in person with a text or by sharing about the show on social media. You can join us on Instagram and Twitter at No People Pod.
2: And be sure to visit our page at Highline.network, where you can sign up for our email newsletter called The Three Thought Thing.
0: No Normal People is a proud founding member of the Highline Media Network. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, Ravel. Even the idea of taking someone else's life, I really, I don't think I have it in me, but there are others who have a strong conviction that if need be, I can, you know, I can take someone else's life. It comes down to an individual intention and an individual's willingness to think, reflect, educate, and to be able to say that they're willing to live with the consequences. Let's get back to our conversation.
2: That's actually what I wanted to talk about next. I was curious to know what kind of specific practices you have around your writing rituals if you're writing at the same time of day do you drink the same cup of coffee or your same chinese oolong tea while you when you sit down do you write with paper and pen do you write with your favorite laptop like i i want to know these details because i have dreams of 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 writing my own things but it's putting the practice in that i've been (laughs) struggling with (laughs) lately yeah
3: It, it is a discipline and it's a, called a discipline for a right way. Anyway, I just to let you know that I'm going to talk about this, my practice, while sipping a very small glass of MacMyra Spence Rock whiskey.
0: God. Oh, my gosh.
2: Absolute. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for this. This is a gift. I just heard about it and I'm, I'm so happy.
3: It is well. It's very smoky and peaty, so I know you like that kind of peaty whiskey. So yes, you know, I sure do. I'm raising a glass to you and Dixie Lee. Oh, Why? Thank you. Thank you.
2: Love it. So the writing practice. Give me the rundown. Writing
3: practice, which has changed over the years, but what it is now is, I wake up, I will grab a cup of coffee, I will have a time of reading a daily meditational email from Richard Raw. I will then have my uh, contemplative practice, so 20 minutes of silence. I've not yet reached the ecstatic state of some mystics, but um, I I suppose it's coming. I hope so. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, Then I'll get up and do some exercises, so dynamic tension stuff, and then I'll get dressed and go out. And there are three parks near where I live, and so I do about five or six kilometers per day, Monday to Friday. I'll oh, then get yeah. home, shower, have something to eat. And then probably about 12 o'clock or one o'clock, I'll start writing until five o'clock when my daughter Brittany comes home and we have a cup of tea or she will have a cup of tea and I'll have a cup of coffee <laughs> and we'll, we'll, you know, have some biscuits, which we're not supposed to be eating, uh, <laughs> especially me as a diabetic. Right. But Hey, yeah. that sins out there now. Um, and beyond that, I will, I have, masses of black, I would say plastic leather bound. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Books and uh a Unilever pen and whatever comes to me I will I will write down. It'd be a, you know, it could be a there are this there's, there's poetry as well that I've been writing because of Jack and Shula, the the two parents. Um they are poets so I've found myself writing poetry. Mm. Um mm. and that will come within kind of like half an hour. I've got the thing down um that's the really good ones the other ones i'll kind of leave little square brackets saying word like such and such because i haven't quite got the word skills that i need to be a proper poet
4: sure (laughs) (laughs) right
3: and and then jeanette gets home and we have an evening meal together uh friday nights is curry night of course of course and then when they tend to go to bed early because they're working in healthcare and are usually shattered by the time they get home, then I will sit and I will read. So at the moment, I'm reading a book called The Silent Cry, subtitled Mysticism and Resistance by Dorothy Suehler, a German writer.
4: Mm, yeah.
3: And that will just, you know, that will maybe feed into one of the characters or one of the threads that I'm writing
4: mm-hmm.
3: about. Or I'll watch a film uh, out of my. DVD collection, you know, and then generally that is, is my day. Go to bed at 11 o'clock or 11 30 and get up at 7, 7 30, somewhere around there the next day. And we'll go through it again Monday <laughs> to Friday. Beautiful. Saturday, Sunday, though, it's kind of family time or doing stuff in the house and gardening and things like that. Right. A Sabbath of sorts. On the- I sat with the sauce, but I've still got the notebook, you see. So I still take an Oh,
0: yes. Mm, yes. Oh, of
2: course. Do you carry a notebook with you wherever you go, even on your morning walks?
3: Not on my morning walks, because I've found that that's not a good thing. But I have an app on my phone, which is called Notes.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. And I'm that to be
3: like a fit made in heaven, really. Well named. <laughs> it does what it says on the tin. Um, yeah. So that's good. So, yeah. And I'll, I'll find myself walking around. And so Shula is the mum and she writes very much about nature. So if I'm walking through the park and something just catches my eye, I might just have the first couple of lines. But I'll find that by the time I've gone around the park three or four times, I've got a poem there. And so yeah. that, that to me is part of the meditative process and about keeping the channels open. So I consider myself not as a creative individualist, but as a, as a channel, really. Mm. um wow and to keep the channels open i'll also kind of be listening to some good music so i've just discovered this thing called jazz music
2: yes well, uh, welcome and in this, to jazz
3: yeah yeah so um john coltrane there you go uh, mccoy classic. tyner
2: mm-hmm.
3: miles davis so i'm listening to all of this and i found that that if ever it feels let's just that the, the channel is just a little bit messy inside isn't flowing so well I find if I put that music on, and just sit and let it wash not over me but through me, then yeah, writing is not a problem.
4: Mm. Wow! So,
2: do you think Do you think this channel language is similar to how other people speak about the creative muse?
3: The the muse seems to me to be always seem to be something, an object outside of the writer, if you know what I mean. In the Greek right. kind of way of thinking about a muse. Whereas mm-hmm. this is very much a spiritual, I don't want to say gift, because it just sounds like it's too easy, doesn't it, you know? Yeah um, sure. no. right. So it's just, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a participant is probably the best way Ooh. in this whole process. Ooh, so I yeah. just write down stuff, and sometimes it comes out in the form of a poem, sometimes in some kind of a descriptive scene or other. Right. Might be a film, you know. Um, it just depends. Generally, you know, I I, I know by now what it's going to fit into and right. what it's informing, and uh-huh. I'm you know I'm quite happy to be the pen.
0: Right, you're just translating it.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's that's a great way of of looking at it, Dixie Lee. Wow. Yeah, translating it.
2: Yeah, wow. Um, y- you're describing your process, especially. I have to imagine. I mean, you've been honing your writing craft your entire life, kind of finding your voice and finding the way you flow through the page. And now you are crafting a world where not only you are writing Mm -hmm. the narration and helping us, the reader, welcome us into your world, but you're also writing characters that are writers. So what's the process of thinking through what their voice sounds like Mm -hmm. and what's it like to write as someone else? It's like that second layer. Oh, it no almost question. reminds me of the way Tolkien would masterfully write songs and poems by the elves mm. or by the dwarves and embed them yes. yeah. in, his, in his own prose. Yes.
3: Yeah. There are, if we just looked at two of the characters, Jack and Shula, So mm-hmm. Jack was known by the authorities as the toxic poet. Mm-hmm. So I understood that his language had to be quite different from Shula's. Hmm. Not that it's softer, but I think um, Shula has a much more deeply formed mysticism as a Mm -hmm. poet and a writer that taps into the whole flow of creation, of nature, of human relationships, of this thing we call flesh that we seem to disdain so much uh, in some traditions, Mm. which is absolutely beautiful and gorgeous to touch. And so she's very much the the sensual mystic so it was about creating that kind of language for her Mm -hmm. and it had to be different from this sharp-edged jack right he was really on point he was about oppression he was about politics you know he writes poems like war is the failure of politics and shula would write a book uh called Journey into Oneness, which is an actual book now because I've written it. <laughs> or should I say Shula's written it? Wow. Um, wow. You know, which has her poetry inside. So, you know, um, she writes very much about nature and about being carried by the wind, about the zephyrs carrying her. Wow. You know, things like that. So her language is quite quite different. Sure. That's
0: amazing. Oh my gosh. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Dixie's just looking at me with a, uh, a speechless... <laughs> Speechless look, wow! I love speechless look. Off, yeah. What the
3: hell are we done here? No, no
2: yeah.
0: like I need to read these freaking books like right now. Yeah,
2: yes, <laughs> like, please. That
0: kind of look.
2: We want in uh, okay it, Okay, we can sort that out. You're selling yeah. it quite well. Who sure. are good. who are some of your your writing influences? Like, what were you reading growing up that uh mm. made you passionate about creating your own worlds like this?
1: Oh, totally
3: different. I mean. I See, I was very much, as I think I alluded to earlier, that I was very much recluse, very reclusive. Mm -hmm. And so my idea of a great holiday is when I could get some money from my mum and I could go around to the news agents who used to sell Enid Blyton books. Mm. Have you heard of Enid Blyton? Yes. Famous Five, The Secret Seven.
2: No, I haven't. So,
3: So, no. Well, these were kids' books. And I didn't like the Famous Five because they were too kind of middle class, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, they always seemed to have these really cool holidays sure, at the sure. country house, you know, I right. think, yeah. Um, <laughs> whereas, you know, uh, the Secret Seven were a kind of a little bit more, you know, or a little less kind of working, uh, sorry, middle class. And so I really enjoyed reading those. You know, I would go upstairs, lie on my bed, read this book, and sometimes I was really slow reader. I think words were kind of a problem in those days. You know, it took me a while to form them and understand them and read a sentence and then read a page and mm, read a book. Yeah. Goodness me. Um, and so I would be reading those. I read, was it a book called uh, White Fang by Jack, Jack, Jack. Jack, Jack, Jack. London. Mm-hmm. Jack London, yes. And books yep. like that. And then my dad would tell me stories about what he did in the war. So I started reading these kind of. We used to call them comics, but probably called graphic novels now, uh, called Commando.
4: Yeah.
3: And it seemed uh, like. The, uh, d- yeah.
0: yeah, right. Yeah.
3: The, the only two or three words that the Germans knew were Donut and Blitzen, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> those kind of books. Uh, sure. And our Commando was always the hero, you know? And he was just killing Germans all the time. And mm. um, yeah. so not very healthy, I suppose, um, for, <laughs> for a man that came to believe in nonviolence. Yeah.
2: Yeah, right. Spot
3: the uh spot the problem there. I did those kind of things. Um then I like I say age 17 became a Christian in a very fundamentalist kind of way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so hey, I read my Bible. And boy, if you just think that's just about sheep lying down and grazing, you've got um a whole new kind of world's gonna burst <laughs> upon you. You know, there's kind of rape <laughs> uh-huh. in there, there's incest. Um. Oh, we're the only people left on Earth. Let's have sex with my daughters. You know those kind of stories. Yeah, you that know. you want to tell. You know, at Sunday school. It you definitely know, reads or, you like know? a
2: wild thriller, yeah. is what it is. This
3: is what Lot got up to. You know. Or <laughs> let's talk about this beautiful poetic passage where we talk about smashing a baby's head against a rock.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: You know, Art. So, John, if you, you know, Johnny, if you, you know, misbehave in this Sunday school, that's what I'm going to do.
0: Fulfill yep. a promise of the Bible or something like that. <laughs> right. Flipping yeah. some tables, just like Jesus. Yeah. And <laughs> I remember reading
3: a book called the seven last years, mm. you know, it was all about that kind of post-apocalyptic stuff that put the fear of God at people. And it, it's always a very interesting way. Isn't it evangelizing about a gospel of love? Uh, and yet there's all this kind of venom, right. venom spewing out and, Hate and destruction and judgment and you know, but God loves you, you know. And I could never, ever really get to the bottom of that. I just, I didn't, in the end, find that it was a convincing way to. uh, Well, would you tell your partner, "Hey, I love you, but he's the judgment of the day." Yeah. You (laughs) You didn't do this, and you didn't do that, and I saw you casting an eye over the neighbor's car or whatever, you know. (laughs) So yeah, and uh, so I wasn't really that we're kind of you know inclined as as a young christian to to read literature that was probably the seven last years and there was another one which was called the mark of the beast there's an apocalyptic theme here uh, oh, yeah, which was right. written by somebody whose name i can't remember but <laughs> i wonder it what it's set, about <laughs> it was yeah but it was set in edwardian london mm. Mm. wow okay orders and carriages and things like that and so you know i think that was what got my imagination working probably in all the wrong fundamentalist ways
4: right Um, but it
2: it at least sets up a an architecture for your mind to start thinking in in new settings and new yeah uh new people's minds new places absolutely for
3: sure for sure
2: um wow
3: and beyond that i in the mid 90s somebody gave me a job uh with my reformational kind of network somebody gave me a job as an arts editor with a magazine called the big picture. And so I worked for, it was published in South Africa and I worked on that for five years, interviewing artists, Wow! reading books on art and me talking about my perceptions about art and the life of the artist and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was really then just given an opportunity by a guy called Craig Bartholomew who, um, just reinforced that thing from the polytechnic that I could write. And I, I was just learning how to write. Really, that was another kind of learning curve. And then, yeah. So between that, at the end of nineteen ninety nine, when it finished, um, and two thousand and twelve, there's a there's a long sojourn in the wilderness, really.
2: Right. And then it <laughs> sounded was, like two thousand twelve yeah. became like an explosion of creativity for you between all the films and the and the writing, the beginnings of this book, and yeah. Oh, that two, yeah. 2012 was a big a big year for you it sounds like it was that, that
3: watershed moment really of, of just realizing not only can you write but you know maybe people want to read it so I had well 2011 2012 13 we had four books published by uh, Chris as um, company publishing company called Uptarka mm. press and um, they were to do with uh, my work as an arts mentor, which lasted for about fifteen years, so from about two thousand and one to mm. two thousand and sixteen, I worked mm. as an arts mentor, and I wrote four books, really about stuff about mentoring, about <laughs> the the Great. work of an artist, you know, the calling of an artist, the identity of an artist. So they had wonderful titles like "The Wilderness and the Desert of the Real." Mm. Whoa! Uh, wow! The, the cultural mode of being translating the invisible wind uh you know things like that and and Chris then said to me look you know if you want to reach a wider audience you've got to think about a different genre right and that's when I started kind of researching and and doing things and thinking wow what so um it was the supernatural um side of things that I wanted to explore we sometimes call uh I will believe 1984 with Bestial demons and <laughs> vampire priests. Yeah.
1: Um,
3: so uh, that kind of, you know, just, you know, family friendly kind of stuff.
2: Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I want to tee you up. I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that we're coming to the uh, near the end of our time here, but I want to tee you up to talk about. Yeah. I'm, I'm connecting quite a few things in my brain here. I'm, I'm hearing the influences. <laughs> Sorry. For <laughs> Owl Believe. I'm hearing the influences of this, this white rose movement and this this nonviolent way of calling out the tremendous evils of the Nazi regime. Yes. Yes. And you mentioned that your biggest pet peeve is the idea of redemptive violence. Yeah. So I'm wondering if we could, if you, I just want to tee you up to talk about uh, the white rose in (laughs) maybe do a, a compare and contrast to Someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was part of the actual assassination attempt, yeah and, and how you know because I, I I think the the people being influenced in the white Rose and Bonhoeffer would both say that they're they're doing what they believe is best as they were called by by the God they follow, mm-hmm. and yet the and yet the way they go about it is completely different and i and, and I'm seeing yeah. the connection to the the myth of redemptive violence happening in the midst of that
3: sure um i think with the white rose movement you have a movement you have a generational thing Mm -hmm. They're, they're young students they're idealists there's a joy they're reveling in their education but also making a moral point so they they had this great phrase which actually appears strangely enough in the novel which is we will not be silent Mm -hmm. We will be your bad conscience. The white rose will not leave you in peace. Wow. Wow. And I'm thinking that's my job as a writer. That's my job as a filmmaker. Right. You know, and so you have that element within the German resistance. I mean, if you talk 20 years ago, probably 30 years ago, German resistance, what are you talking about? They were all, you know, Nazis. <laughs> Turns out, hey, the West was wrong. Mm. Um, wow. And so you then have an older generation, you know, uh, von Staffenberg, you have Bonhoeffer, yep. you have Admiral Canaris. So people that are, you know, military in mind, who are high up, I think, in the German Navy, I think Canaris was. Yes, Admiral, that's, you know, kind of join the dots there, Jeff. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so I think they you know bonhoeffer's part in that it seems to me started that he was he was moving information about what's happening in germany to places like sweden people outside mm-hmm. of the then outside of the grip of nazism right and so you might call that i think passive resistance but even bonhoeffer himself turns around and says you know it came to the point where we felt we had to intervene we had to do something This could not continue, right? And, you know, so even I think the the most ardent supporters of nonviolence realize that at some point you may have to be violent, right? Um, But that's not that's not a oh gee I'm really pissed off with Hitler today. Let's just stick a bomb under his desk. You know, it wasn't that kind of visceral reactionary. It was well thought out, obviously, with Bonhoeffer, and so I think in the end. You know, he would say, I read something in, yes, another book about him, which said, you know, don't think of me as a saint. Don't think of me as a martyr because there's blood on my hands. I tried to kill, you know, I was part of the plot to kill Hitler. And so Mm. he's very much aware. He's very self-aware, is Bonhoeffer, I think, when talking about his own conscience and what is necessary action. And basically how, if you knew that millions of people were being gassed, exterminated, what would, what would we do? Well, nowadays we'd probably hold a prayer meeting. Yeah. You know?
0: Um,
3: yeah. I'll whoa, pray. I'll whoa. pray for you.
0: Like, that's yeah. not going to help me.
3: And so Boniface, <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, he's not,
3: he's not, hey, it's, it's about damn time we got round to this. Yeah. You know?
2: Yeah. It wasn't a flippant move. No. He wasn't taking it lightly. Yeah.
3: Oh, I'm really bored with nonviolence. Let's see what we could do. Oh, violence. Let's lose the non,
2: you know? Right and and the hyphen yeah it yeah. wow it it reminds me of that the pivotal moment in uh c.s lewis's Paralandra, where ransom realizes that in order to save the planet venus from their own fall mm. you know him being an earthling on this planet in order to help be part of like the the, the the creation and the like the, the beginnings of their flourishing on the planet mm. he grapples for an entire chapter on you know this 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 demon shows up and he he grapples for an entire chapter of like i've tried reasoning with him for days now yeah yeah and we yeah. just can't do it and he has this turning point where he's like can i really be the first thing on this planet to kill another thing
4: mm Mm. and like he mm. he
2: grapples with the weight of that decision and w- yeah. what what he's being called to do by the Eldilla that's yeah. that's the uncomfortable feeling that I got and Bonhoeffer was one of the, my first thoughts when I was reading that book was like it's it, because I so fundamentally believe in in nonviolence and the tenets mm. of of pacifism yeah but man in in such a situation I don't It would be like that's a a major decision and a major thing to grapple with.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I've learned certain things from different conversions, you know, fundamentalism, reformational kind of thought, Mm. you know, contemplative. So I would say my politics are definitely reformational in the fact that there's a thread within reformational thought about being anti-revolutionary because revolution are about violence. Right. But my way of connecting the dots to the cultural domain now for me as a writer and hopefully sometime as a filmmaker again, is actually through my contemplative practice and out into the realm of nonviolent action. Right. Yeah. Because I think we don't actually teach that sense of subversion, of undermining authority, of, yeah, let's go back to, to being a troublemaker. So, you know, and when, the, when the, the rulers of the state say, oh, this, this, this program of spending will, will will help the poor people, you know, where it really, really needed. Um, and then we should be the creators of uncertainty for that and say, really?
4: Mm-hmm. But,
3: but, but how, much are the, how much are the rich, you know, getting away with not paying taxes? Well, if they yeah. paid taxes, you could have health care. Yeah. And I know kind of in America, universal health care is, <laughs> seem to be derided somewhat as a, some, so somewhat as a kind of socialist yep. idea. Yeah. Ooh, yes. Right. You know, genuflect. That radical put, put left. Put the signs across. <laughs> yes, that, those radical radicals. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so I, 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 I think if I look at the length of my story over, you know, nearly 50 years of signing on the dotted line of salvation, mm-hmm. um, then – I would say I would take those threads. That there's, a, there's a fervor for a message that's different. There's a whole sense of an expanding worldview and a politics to go along with that reformational worldview. But then there's this even bigger universal thing going on um, that I want to be a part of. And I think I am a part of. I just, I'm not on the outside of it. I'm, it's working through me.
2: Wow. You know? yeah. So
3: I don't feel any sense of separation. In fact, I don't think I have for years. I've never felt separated from God. I've always had a strong sense of, of divine presence. Right, mm.
0: And I, you talking about this, it makes me think about like action and purpose and how mm. together they make sense and separate they can make sense. But, you know, with violence, action without purpose is just, is just wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But. And similarly, like how you said, you know, we're just going to pray for you. That's purpose without action. <laughs> yeah. so, mm. so that separation of the two. Um, yeah. No, I just love yeah. everything. That yeah. You're and saying that's right now.
2: and that's the beauty of uh, Jeff, what you and I read every morning from our friend Richard Rohr in his daily meditations, like his yes. whole yes. his whole thing is the center for action and contemplation. Yeah. And yeah. He, he talks about like sometimes the action actually needs to come before the contemplation. But this the form mm-hmm. of action we're talking about. You know, I, I think of our American civil rights movement, and I, I think about the <laughs> yeah. uh, the British um, abolitionists. Like yeah. there, there was a way of subverting the culture and transforming something from the inside out without having to resort to a, a violent way of achieving their ends. Because ultimately, yeah. ultimately, I think the the story and the path laid out in the person of Jesus in that story is. You you don't get what you want if you implement it through violence, mm-hmm. because if it can be gained yeah. by violence, it can be lost yeah. by violence, right?
3: Yeah, and and actually, violence isn't very good at building things.
2: No, it always tears it's down. Good at
3: destroying things, and, yep. and assumes that it's oh, radical action. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. Well, what have you managed to do? Well, I destroyed this. Okay, you know. Yeah. So it, you know, it kind of takes you to a the kind of prophetic callings of the likes of Jeremiah, doesn't it? Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know,
3: you know, so, you know, his he's, he's calls, I mean, I mean, what a calling? You know, well, okay, I'm setting you above the nations, and I want you to uproot and tear down. Hmm. I want you to destroy and overthrow, you know, so the FBI must be watching now if he was, had the FBI in those days. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. You know, and to, but then to build into plant, And I think so much of the radicalism, We see in America and we see in Europe you know it's all about tearing down it's all about overthrowing yeah there's nothing to be built from that sense of well it's not really radicalism it's just violence
0: yeah it's because it's it's missing the contemplation and the purpose like some people have the purpose and they're all about the purpose and then others Hmm. the radical people are just the action Um, So you're missing that translation between the two of them, because if people actually take the time to like contemplate the actions that they are going to, you Mm. know, commit um, half, I would say easily half the time people, when they contemplate it, they're like, okay, this is not the correct action.
4: Mm.
3: Yes. Yeah. I think that one of the lessons to be drawn from that is that purpose doesn't necessarily give you identity. Yes. You've got to have identity before you start the action,
0: yeah,
2: Wow, yeah, something something to be lived out,
3: Yes, otherwise it's very nihilistic, it seems to me. It's wow. just, hey, so we can all group together and we can destroy stuff. Oh, well, why? Because I'm angry. Why are right. you angry? I don't know, I was born that way. Well, <laughs> no you weren't <laughs> That's that you know
2: It's not helpful, right. Wow. yeah, wow. so My have goodness.
3: identity before you have purpose,
2: yeah,
0: and I mean that just you know. Exemplifies what Jesus is in the Bible. Like, yes, he does commit acts of violence, but there is purpose behind it. Like, it's not something that he just decided to do.
2: But even then, the the upturning of the temple, I even struggle defining that as violence because he wasn't he wasn't out to hurt, no, or you know maim or injure. He was he was there to like right. It was flipping tables. He wasn't like (laughs) slashing people down. Yeah, yeah.
3: Uh, yeah, I wonder if um, he asked the father for forgiveness and said, oh, well, what's the matter, son? What, what, what have you done? Oh, I overturned some tables. <laughs> right. You know, I, I don't really think
4: that. Right, well, and that goes back know. to
2: our call is that the, the fantastic quote you gifted us where, where it, being the troublemaker yeah. is actually yeah. our call here.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <sighs> but so much we're compliant with the status quo we think the status quo is the realm or the kingdom of God.
2: Yeah. And it's just so far from the truth. Mm Wow. Wow. My goodness, Jeff. Thank you so much for gifting us your afternoon today. Yes. This has been an absolute delight. I have a few closing questions for us as we as we look to wrap up here.
0: I actually I have one question before Stephen asks these other questions. Okay. Because you mentioned in the Icebreaker that your favorite failure was getting a vasectomy. Um I would like an explanation of that.
3: Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Oh I you know, I'd forgotten about I thought I'd got away with that one.
0: (laughs) I literally have not stopped thinking about it. so. So wait yeah.
3: So so we decided that Jeff's little guys should, you know, not be swimming around anymore. Sure. Right. And um, so I am, I, I, we have this uh, kind of pre-vasectomy interview, you know, yeah. to see whether there's, you know, you've got the right motives behind doing that. And mm-hmm. yeah, all of that kind of stuff. And what happens if Jeanette dies and then, you know, you want to start another family and I'm going, she's not going to die, you know, <laughs> leave me alone. <laughs> Just cut the little guys out, you know. Yeah. Um, so I'm there on the trolley. It's a little kind of like a little box room, really. Right. And I'm laid on this trolley and, you know, no trousers on. (laughs) There's like a a blue cloth with a slit over the interesting parts. Yeah. So they can see them. (laughs) Yep. And the guy is just getting out the scalpel and looking at the dosage for the anesthetic, you know, the local. And a nurse knocks on the door, walks in. Stands over me, looks down and goes, huh, and walks back out again.
0: What? Walks back out again.
3: <laughs> what? what? And I'm going, All right. Did you see that? And he, he's like, he you not interested. I'm like, What? 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 And it was just this look of, oh, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like totally unimpressed. What can I say? Wow. So that was, that was, I think it lacked a certain professional quality for a nurse. But sure. Hey,
2: yeah, bedside so, manner much. Hey,
3: Yeah, so that was story one. Story two was I get home. Um, At this time, my daughter is about two and a half, Brittany, and she's a little bundle of joy and, yay, daddy, you know. So um, I come home. I'm sat in the living room while I'm laid on the the sofa. Mm -hmm. I've got one leg down and one leg up just to give, you know, a little (laughs) bit of comfort. Yep. And um, Brittany runs in. I could hear Jeanette in the, in the kitchen go, oh, daddy's home. Go and say hello to daddy. Oh, so no. I hear these little feet kind of running towards me, and she dives right in no. between my legs. Oh, Ooh. God. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, there you go. That's my vasectomy story.
0: Oof.
2: Favorite failure, Expandful. huh?
0: Wow. <laughs> oh, man.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, man. There okay. you go.
2: Sto- Dixie, are you satisfied with story time? Dixie Lee, I'm yeah,
4: really thank you. glad you
0: are.
2: <laughs> Satisfied with story time.
0: I'm glad I'm not the only person that has really awkward, like doctors looking at, you know, private parts stories. Yes. Um, seeing you unimpressed. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that.
2: Right. I've
3: got more of those, but not, not now.
2: You right. Know? <laughs> Good. Okay. All right.
3: So, Stephen, do you have any. Yes. Do you have me- any questions about medical procedures or anything? Uh, oh, no, not, yeah. not at this juncture. When was juncture.
0: your last colonoscopy? No, no, thank you. I'm just kidding. You, <laughs> no. don't, you don't have um,
2: to go into that. <laughs> goodness. Uh, Jeff, tell me about what you grow in the garden. Oh, um, I am growing potatoes.
3: I'm growing garlic. Some fennel that seems to have seeded itself and rooting <laughs> itself around the place. What else do we have? We have apple trees. So I get some apples there and
4: mm.
3: I grow some herbs. My favorite at this time of the year is lovage, which is a kind of celery tasting herb, but it's, uh, it's good for your digestive system. So mm. I, wow. I love having a cheese and lovage bread because I'm not allowed to eat bread because it disagrees <laughs> with me. So I have pitterbread. Uh, doesn't. Excellent. So, so yeah, so there I've just put the potatoes in, so in 12 weeks, 11 weeks' time, we shall have some new potatoes, so that'll be good. And the garlic will be coming out. They've been over the winter, and there's been lots of frost, so that means that it increases the taste of the garlic if you have frost. Mm. So Does
2: it you know, really? If wow. you've got
3: a little garden, just break open a bulb of garlic, put the roots down, poke mm-hmm. a little hole, and cover them up, and that's in October, and by May time, you'll have – a new bulb of uh,
2: juicy-looking garlic. Mm. Wow. All right. I know what Dixie's trying today. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's
0: it's snowing right now.
2: Yeah, we have a new intro of snow today.
3: We have, like, 16, 17 degrees and sunshine.
2: Beautiful. mm, Beautiful.
0: Celsius. I was, like... That's cold. Celsius. Yeah, so yeah, no. yeah, yeah. I
2: was, I was like,
0: Fahrenheit? Oh my god.
2: You should have you should have oh, yes, yeah. I, yeah. I
0: shorts on and uh, I
3: showed everybody my vasectomy scar.
0: Yeah.
2: You should have seen her too when you you said you go Kilometers. on a five or six kilometer like, walk she was like doing the math in over here. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Stupid American. Yeah, because
2: we like being just a little different. Do you have so do, do you have yes. any pets in the house? No, no pets for you. No, no, no not
0: no, even no, an no, elephant.
2: No, no, not even an elephant. Nope.
3: No, we can't afford one yet. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, yet. No, that's fair. <laughs> you
3: know, and we need an extension to the garden. So, sure. You know, yeah. So, so no pets.
0: Pretty large compost pile.
3: Absolutely. I did, I did have a pet budgerigar when I was a kid called Joey.
0: A pet what?
3: A budgie, budgerigar, a bird.
0: Oh, <laughs> I was like. <laughs> okay <laughs>
3: what did you think i, meant, Dixie I don't Lee?
0: know
2: were you thinking some form of furry creature <laughs> yeah
0: i was like is that some kind of rodent <laughs> <laughs> it's a sky rodent
3: feathers yes yeah. anyway to cut a long story short I, I dropped the city on him so that was the end of that oh, oh no <laughs> oh gosh
4: <laughs> oh, yeah no. accident
3: prone you should know yeah you not only good got fans not good with
0: yeah. You know, bikes, motorbikes,
4: and so, birds. Yeah. You yeah, yeah, right. haven't
0: been and hit b- by any like motor vehicles recently. Like, oh, well, we've
3: had a few car crashes, but um, <laughs> nothing that meant I was hospitalized. Uh,
2: you know? I think, okay, I think I think it's good that you stick to walking in the park and riding for six hours a day. Yeah. 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 Jeanette,
3: Jeanette has the car.
4: Yeah. <laughs>
2: sounds car. a lot that safer for good. you. Yeah, yeah. Very good. All right. Well, you told me that you are uh, currently reading a book called The Silent Cry. Any other? Do you read only one book at once or are you... Uh,
3: oh, no. Do you multi, no. multi-task? I probably got, um, I've got Kafka on the go at the moment. I just started reading Kafka. Oh, yeah. Just because I saw a travel program and they went to Prague and they went to the cafe where he used to read out his work. Mm. Um and I thought ooh Kafka. So I've just started reading a kind of compilation of all his work. I've started with The Trial which is it, it it's just a totally different world of otherness that you go yes. what the heck's happening here.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I just yep. love him.
3: So reading another book called uh, Unbelief and Revolution which is by a guy called Chron van Prinsterer who's a Dutchman of the 18th century. Um mm. so mm in the themes of that i've got richard Raw's divine dance on the go um yes, i've just me too Well, not just finished, i've it. just bought actually this lovely book by the book of angelus silesius a 17th century zen poet a european at that so and i've just started reading that and that is just like uh, water to uh, you know a thirsty man that is wonderful
2: wow what, what's been on the, the playlist lately when, you, when, it's, uh, when you're putting music on?
3: Um, everybody was out. I have a set of speakers in the front room and a set of speakers in the kitchen. Okay? Wi-Fi enabled. So I must admit to banging out a bit of Evanescence.
0: Yes. Um,
3: yeah. Wow. That is not what uh, I expected.
2: Yes. Yeah, wow. Well,
3: yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was... Mm, That was meaty. I have to say, you got me dancing in the kitchen. If the people in the house across the garden could have seen me, they'd be going, what? He's having another fit.
2: (laughs) Right. He's going nuts over there. I love
3: it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, What about,
2: what about podcasts? What, what are you currently listening to there?
3: I, there's this thing called uh, no normal people, which (laughs) I think is a play on words. Uh, Yes, absolutely. Um, Let's see. Uh, Ravel. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. That's my favorite. Uh, Turning to the Mystics with Jim Finley. And, mm. But uh, that's another uh, center for action and contemplation thing. There's one called Terrorism 360 Degrees, which I was doing a bit of research for. So I pick up, you know, things like that. I listen to Rob Bell mm-hmm. any time of the day, week, month or year that he's, you know, doing stuff. Right. Of course. Um, it's just kind of soul food for me. Right. Absolutely. What else? I haven't got my iPad with me. Otherwise, I would just reel off a haul. Whole... I've probably got about 15, and some of them have stopped. Oh, oh there was another name for everything, wasn't there, about oh, the universal yeah. Christ, mm-hmm. uh, which has come to an end, which is so sad. But uh, you're a kind of connoisseur kind of, of the podcast, are you not?
2: I, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably subscribed to too many. But yeah,
0: I could say that. I'm familiar
2: Definitely. with many that you've named. I happen yeah. to host two of them, so that's that also is gratifying. <laughs> <That's>,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely know those ones.
2: Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yep. Jeff, thank you so much again for the gift of your afternoon. It's ten AM here. I know we're we're a little over five um there in Bristol, but
3: Yeah. Well, as speaking from the voice in the future, it, the day turns out really well.
2: Oh, oh thank you. Looking forward to <laughs> it very and much.
0: Good to know that it's sixteen degrees out and sunny. Right? Yep. It's snowing right now, so.
2: And meanwhile, it's 22 degrees here and snowing, so.
0: Mm.
2: I'm so glad we could line this up. I'd I'd like to just end with a quote from Kafka.
3: Yes, absolutely. Is that permissible? Of course. Because this really speaks to me. I think, yeah, this guy knows what he's talking about. Sure. So he says this, don't bend, don't water it down, don't try to make it logical, don't edit your own soul according to the fashion rather follow your most intense obsessions mercilessly
2: Mm. beautiful would you close the podcast out by reading our favorite quote
3: indeed the only normal people you know are the ones you don't know very well
0: Thank you for joining us. You can follow the Hennings on Instagram and Twitter at Stephen G. Henning and at Dixie Lee Henning. Our theme music is composed and performed by Stephen and Dixie Henning and was recorded, mixed, and mastered by Austin Smith.
2: Our artwork is designed by Dixie Lee Henning. Find more of her work at DixieLeeDraws.com, at Dixie on both Instagram and TikTok, and at Dixie on Twitter. Welcome in, friends. This is Ravel. To ravel is the same as to unravel, but we don't feel like we're falling apart. Every Wednesday, we pull on one thread at a time as we discuss our own questions about American Christianity.
0: Sometimes we wonder if your dentist might be a cult leader and whether or not I can be a pastor. We tell stories about a pastor sawing a mannequin into pieces.
2: Or sometimes we're just arguing about whether or not the Bible is satire. So follow Ravel if you're interested in questions like this, too.
0: Highline Media Network, normal people in normal places.